Hello and welcome to the Sierra Bible Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Nate Levin. When, on, on one of our, our family Russia trips, or not Russia, we were in, um, praying for Russia right now. Uh, when we were in Africa, uh, I was studying, I was teaching at uh, a Bible college and my daughter and I were, uh, they were swimming or something because we'd rented a little bit of time at a pool in an afternoon. And she came to me and I'm sort of studying, they're doing their own thing. And she said, dad, you got to see this. And she said, um, there is a, a gentleman over there that's trying to teach his daughter how to swim. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't know how to swim. Which if you've been to Africa, this is how it happens a lot of times. And, and so she, we started to watch, right? And there was a girl, uh, I didn't get to this illustration in second service. So I thought I'd start with it. It'll be, have no context whatsoever, but I like it. So you're going to hear it. There was a girl with floaties on, right? And so she's over there in the swimming pool. It's about three feet deep and she's about five feet tall. And so she's got one foot on the ground and she's got her floaties on and he's trying to teach her how to swim. And my daughter's just like, what's even happening? Like, you know, and this guy's like giving her some pointers that would not help you learn how to swim. And so she's like, dad, we can help. I'm like, the like, big hairy white guy doesn't need to help. That'll be awkward. So why don't you walk over there and just say, hey, would you like some help? I know how to swim. And uh, they were like, oh, that would be amazing. You know, this would be great. And so my daughter then, this was the first of like maybe four times on this trip where we ended up in these interesting teach them how to swim opportunities um, because lots of these African kids are like, you know, they're in pools or they're at the lake and it's like, Nobody knows how to swim, but like we've seen other people do it. So we should try. And my daughter, you know, first she's like looking at me like, can I actually do this? And I said, yeah, they said yes. And so she looked at him and she said, well, first you need to take the floaty off. And to watch her pull this floaty off, you would think it was like, okay, now I'm going to drown fast. Meanwhile, she's in, you know, three feet of water. But as she took it off and we worked with her back and forth across and she began to just sort of learn what it was like to swim. She was 12 or 13 years old. And by the time we left, she was able to kind of jump in in the deep end and swim to the shallow end, no floaties. And I remember thinking on that day, that's a picture of what God desires for every person to grow into in their relationship with him. There are times, right, where we just need a little help to like keep from killing ourselves. But God came in the person of Jesus and he did something on that cross for us. And he changed our relationship to the law. He paid for it all. He took it all. The punishment's done. No longer do we throw a floaty on. What Jesus said is I'm going to fill your lungs with my spirit and we're going to swim together. We're going to walk this out. You're going to see, experience things you never would. But it's, it's going to take trusting me. It's going to take some places where you think, you know, it'd be easier if I just become obedient to what I know. And Jesus is going to say, let go of the control Leave the, the law and the floaties aside and let me wreck your heart for the things that matter. And you'll learn to, okay, so that's the whole, it's a pretty good illustration, huh? First service didn't get any of that. That'll come into play at the very end of this message. Until then, we've got some setup to get ourselves into this picture of what God is doing in the midst of this historical context, right, that we find ourselves in. Now, if you've been tracking with us throughout the summer, we um, decided we'd walk through together what 
many claim is Jesus' most kind of profound uh, sermon for sure, and in many ways his words. Uh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to look at four verses together. They'll be on the screens, but love for you to read them uh, in your own Bible if you have, maybe even take some notes. Some would say that verse 17 and verse 20, two of the verses we'll look at today, are uh, the interpretive key for this entire um, sermon, but also some of the most profound words Jesus ever uttered. And if you're like me, and you're like, oh no, I already know how to swim, sometimes we're like, well, how, how would one say this is that important? Why would these words have shocked his original hearers? Why would these be the kind of words that would put a person like him on a cross like that? Why did they collide with the culture in the way that they did? Well, in order to do that, we're going to do a little bit of summer kind of theology, which is for all of us challenging maybe, but I I think it'll be fun. It'll give us a little bit of a context for this. How many of you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? We'll do a little Bible translation work, not a lot. Um, But the Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, a set of scrolls that were found literally some, you know, 75 or 80 miles south of where Jesus is actually giving this sermon up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And they were found about 75 years ago or so. uh, And they date back to about 300 years BC. So before Jesus, um, these scrolls were, um, you know, written about this sort of the Jewish uh, story, but primarily they're the Jewish Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the narration and the story of God's people of purpose. Now, uh, the Bibles that we have and the Bibles that were being translated up until really, you know, about 75 years ago or so, um, we were using documents or scrolls that date back to right around 1,000 years A.D. So we're reading about a story that some, you know, 3,500 to, you know, 1,500 years prior to the documents that we're using to actually translate into what we currently have as the Old Testament. So does that make sense? There's about a 1,300-year gap. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by some archaeologists um, in a cave, Quamran Caves down there, they pulled these things out. Some people said, okay, now we're finally going to figure out how much of this was just kind of made up. But every Jew that knew they'd found these scrolls knew something different. And they leaned in and said, you guys aren't going to believe the perfect, every little letter, every tittle, they call it, the little, you know, kind of lines on the Hebrew language will be identical. And the Jewish nation said, bring it out. Like, let's compare. Let's see. And what did they find? They found that almost to a word, 1,300 years of translation rendered an almost identical document. Why? It was because of the way they valued the word of God. It was was the way that they valued the law and the prophets, that which God had given them. Oftentimes, you know, you might get a message that comes from your kid that comes from another kid that came from a teacher. And at that point, you have no idea what the teacher actually said or if the teacher actually said anything. But the Jewish nation understood the law as what God had given them and and understood it actually as the very thing that put them 
into a right standing with God. So if we obey these things, God's going to bless us. If we disobey these things, God's going to punish us. And this was sort of the world that they lived in. Now, for us, you might think, oh, come on, there's much more to the biblical story. Haven't you read these sections? But imagine being an Israelite, one of God's people of purpose. Father Abraham's your guy. He launches the nation. God gives them three things that they tether their identity to. These three things, we have them written down. uh, And and it's important when we think about the nation, even their understanding and their, uh, we'll just call it obsession, at one level with the law. God said this. He said, part of my, uh, my people of promise, the people of Israel, they're going to be sort of tied to three things. One is going to be land. God's blessing will always be tied to land. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, these come back over and over. The other one is God said, I'm going to give you a temple. And um, as we studied Exodus, like a whole part of Exodus is how to build that thing. And what does this look like? The moving temple. And then eventually they would build the real temple. Uh, and then God gave them the law. Exodus 20, um, And then on and on and on, word after word, you know, idea, ceremonial laws, all kinds of different laws that set them up to maintain their identity amongst pagan nations, but also, again, primarily put them in right standing with God. But they realized what you and I realize is they weren't very good at it. And so what they did is they took the people that seemed to be really good at it, the goody two-shoes, you love those people, you know, and those people actually uh, set their entire lives to memorizing the Old Testament and accomplishing its laws. These people were known as Pharisees in Jesus' day. And literally, they had no job but to do the law. So there's about 613 or so that they have kind of walked through. And so the scribes would come up, hey, here's the law. The Pharisees would just do it all day long. It was like a checklist. I do this, I do this, I do this. Okay, now we're good. And again, throughout the nation's time to get from where God gave these things to the place when Jesus shows up and we read the words we're about to read this morning, there are many times where their leaders got them off track where they disobeyed God and God would strip them from the land. God would uh, allow nations to come in and their temple would become rubble. Eventually where we pick up the story in Jesus' day, I mean, they have sort of a, sort of a representation of the temple, not the one it once was. They're living in the land, but it's being ruled by the Romans. But what do they have? They've got the law. I mean, they've got the law. Everybody knew. And the Romans even say, hey, we'll let them, their law, that's painless. Like, let, let them keep doing that stuff. And because these other things were stripped, as you can imagine, the one thing they hooked onto was, we're going to do this really, really well. And so they did. And it was incredibly important to them. And anybody that was of any kind of religious stature or authority could do this really, really well. Well, then Jesus comes into the scene and Jesus begins to kind of mess with their understanding of what it looked like to certainly be a religious leader, but also to be obedient to God's law, which again, puts you in right standing with God. So this is where we pick up the story in verse 17. Uh, We're going to skip through this. We'll go to verse 17 uh, of um, Matthew chapter 5. 
This is the, the Sermon on the Mount then. Jesus says this. If Jesus ever starts with this when he's talking to you, it's because he knows what you're thinking. Here's what Jesus says to those that are in attendance, his disciples. Do not think, because I know what you're thinking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So they're watching Jesus, and it's like, here comes this guy, and it's the way he's living, the way he's Sabbathing, the way he's, this guy's come to abolish the law. He doesn't care about the law. He doesn't hold it up. Jesus says, don't think that. He says, I've not come to abolish the law. But, and this is Jesus' kind of mic drop moment, but to fulfill them. And then he sort of sets those at ease a bit in verse 18. First, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, that's a jot, not the least stroke of a pen, that's that little tittle, will be made or will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until its purpose comes to fulfillment. Verse 19 then says this, Jesus goes on. Therefore, anyone who sets aside, this is where he kind of leans into us. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To which everybody listening is like, we don't have a chance. We're part of the group that's not good at doing all this. So Jesus then says this, he raises the bar even more, if you will. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the righteous of the righteous, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus says, unless you can be better than all of those people, you're not going to get anywhere. He doesn't just say better than. He says, unless your righteousness goes further than. Unless your righteousness is deeper than. And it's right after this phrase, next week we'll jump into uh, six times where Jesus says, you heard that it was said. In other words, here's the law. But I say, you heard that it was said, but I say. And Jesus, what he's going to do in that is he's going to say, you know, at some level, it's fairly easy to understand the law. It's another thing to change your heart. And Jesus leans into these people and he says, frankly, like, I don't really care if you're uh, not murdering people. I don't really care if you're committing adultery. Because you're walking around with anger in your heart and lust in your eyes. And I've come to take your righteousness deeper than the law. I've come to teach you how to swim, to pull the floaty off and to live. Loving the people around you, not guarded by this law, trying to stay from being destroyed. So Jesus comes and he says, I didn't come to abolish this law. I came to fulfill it. I came to be its conclusion. I I came to answer its prophets. Jesus said, in effect, all of the Old Testament narrative, the story of God coming to a people to restore them, to bring a sort of final forgiveness, to bring blessing, to bring them back into relationship with their God. I came to fulfill those promises. The whole Old Testament, all those ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, 
the moral laws, even the entire sacrificial system, the priesthood. I mean, just imagine what their hearers heard. When Jesus said, I came to fulfill that. I came to be the ultimate and final sacrifice. That system is done. We're going to walk together. And Matthew works really hard, if you read his gospel in length, to tie together all of these Old Testament prophecies and the work and the person of Jesus. Some 68 references throughout Matthew, he references the Old Testament. In other words, Matthew's saying to, to his readers, see, it's Jesus. See, it's Jesus. Remember, see, it's Jesus. Some 12 times, very specifically, we would read these words in Matthew. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The Lord said this was going to happen someday. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm doing all that. This is what I am up to. We think about even the Christmas story, and maybe you remember this phrase in, um, in Matthew chapter 1, where there's these you know, interesting details around how Jesus is uh, conceived and born, and Matthew steps in and says, all of that's happening because of a prophecy that was given thousands of years ago. We're told that uh, Jesus, or the, the one that would come, that God would send, would take the iniquities of his people. He would heal uh, uh, the world, essentially. And in Matthew chapter 8, what Matthew says is, look what Jesus is doing. He's doing the very thing that was promised. You might remember the scene at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before Jesus would go to the cross and give his life for us. And um, the Roman, Romans come, they're coming to get Jesus. Peter grabs his little pocket knife, chops one of the guy's ears off, and Jesus is like, stop, knock it off, Peter. All this is happening as a part of God's plan. God is up to something. God is changing something. And this is our moment. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill. It's a new covenant, an invitation for you and I to get in on what God is doing. But again, we don't sit in that day. And so I think if you're anything like me, you kind of read this and like, okay, what did Jesus, he fulfilled some law. He fulfilled some prophecy. What does that mean for us? And what I want us to do is take a look, because uh, I, I think they're profound, is at a few of the phrases in what we call the New Testament, the new covenant that God makes uh, for us through faith in the blood of what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to look at the guy who wrote most of our New Testament. His name's Paul. Now, Paul was a guy uh, that was actually sort of qualified as a Pharisee. He would tell you that when it came to righteousness, he was perfect. Not the kind of thing you write down if you're not perfect, you know? But that's who Paul was. He had the right name. He had the right education. He got everything right until, and this is such a great story. Hopefully you've read it. Until Jesus meets him. And what he realizes is that, oh my goodness, I got everything right. But I didn't know God. And what he'll eventually say is, I considered all that as he looked back from a vantage point of walking with God. I consider all that as garbage, as rubbish compared to what I now have. And so Paul will speak to us about uh, what it looks like to kind of let go of the law. 
Before we look at this section in uh, Galatia, Galatians is a book that Paul writes to a church that he launches in a place called Galatia. Uh, these were a bunch of red-haired pagans. I called them first service. My brother-in-law Mark's in here. He's redheaded as they come, and he's like, yeah, oh, that's me. I'm a Galatian, I guess. Um, but they're a bunch of red-headed pagans. Paul does what all of us are called to do, and he goes on mission, and he goes and begins to tell the known world, these, this is in eastern Turkey, about what God has done, about this good news, about the reality that, hey, it's not about whether you get it right or whether you get it wrong. It's about what Jesus has done for you, and by faith in his good work on the cross, you can be restored as a child of the living God. And Paul goes with this message. It, man, it's faith. It's It's faith alone. You can be entered in. And so these pagans are coming to know Christ and this church is born in Galatia. And then this little group comes out of Jerusalem and they follow, called the Judaizers, as you read the story in the second half of Acts. They follow Paul around. And they're like, you know, after Paul leaves, like, well, what did Paul say? Paul said we could know God. Paul said we could be forever forgiven because of what Jesus had done. Like, whoa, 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 slow down. What Paul meant was Jesus and you still need to get these laws right. You still need to be a little bit Jewish to get in on what God is doing. And so Paul hears about this and Paul writes a letter back to these churches to straighten them out and to get their eyes focused back on Jesus. And so Galatians is an incredible letter about freedom in Christ and about finding Christ by faith alone. And so here's some of what Paul writes uh, to the church in Galatia. He says, this is, he's trying to bring them back to Jesus. He says, before the coming of this faith, that faith is faith in what Jesus has accomplished, not what you and I might achieve on our own. Before the coming of this faith, this new covenant, we were held in custody, Paul says, under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, Paul says. It was our our life preserver until Christ came, that we might be justified, not Made right, that's what justified means. Not made right because I look good or I have the right last name or I made it into the right school or I'm better at hiding my sin than you are. Justified by faith in what Jesus has done. Now that this faith has come, he said, we're no longer under that garden. You know, Paul's like, yeah, we've been released from this. Jesus is teaching us how to swim. We're walking this out. And so here's what he says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Stop trying to be Jewish, he says. Let God transform your heart by faith. What's interesting, and this is what Jesus will walk out in the rest of this sermon, is that they both look a lot alike. But as Jesus will conclude this sermon, there's two paths, two trees, two foundations. One has a sort of religious righteousness. The other one has a sort of goodness that comes by a gospel-transformed heart. And we'll see the difference play out in all kinds of different ways. Some of you know our story. We've shared bits and pieces of it before. And uh, about seven years ago or so, we felt God, like, I don't know about insisting, but inviting us to adopt some kids. And uh, so... We went through the process, and if you know the state of California, if you're going to adopt uh, kids into your family, what you first become is a foster parent. 
And so you go through all the foster training and this and that. They come up and they look at your home and they make sure there's no electrical wires hanging out, that your, you know, plugs are all plugged in, that your fire extinguisher's in the right place. And, you know, they make sure your home is safe for the kids that are under the state of California's care that they're going to, you know, entrust you to watch for some time. And so then, you know, eventually these two boys show up in our home after ripping them out of their current environment. And it's just chaos and chaos. Like it just picture chaos and it's that times two. So there's all kinds of craziness going on. Once a month, the social worker shows up at your house with a whole list, like a checklist to make sure that you're loving these kids. So they, they look around and they're like pulling on the drawers to make sure the drawer stops are on there. They're looking at the outlets to make sure, you know, there's no dangerous spots. And then and this was a little harrowing, especially the first time this happened. They grab our two-year-old son, who you just never know what's coming out of that kid's mouth. They take him into a closed bedroom and it's like, how are they doing? You know, are they beating you? Do you like it here? I, I mean, we just pray to God that he would just not say anything. Just act like you're mute, you know? I mean, because who knows what's going to come out of his mouth. But the point was, if we're going to put these kids in your home, we're going to, by law, require you to take care of them. Require you to love them as we see fit. Well, this goes on for months, and eventually we get our court hearing, and we get to go down to before Kate Sagerstrom. She was awesome, and um, we go down, and we're sworn in as their parents. And so we walked in, foster parents. We walked out with two boys whose last names matched mine. And it's a radical moment. And then a couple of months after that, we got birth certificates that literally have their names on them that match again hours. And I'm telling you, when you're in that courtroom and you leave, it's like the greatest day of your life because now you don't have to be nice to your children anymore. You know, you can beat them and they can't say anything. So we went home, we pulled all the wires out. It's like, Hey kids, just play. You should learn now. You know, this is obviously not, obviously not. But to me, it's a picture of what it looks like for some of us that we really believe in our heart of hearts that God's keeping score. I hear it in the way you respond to questions. I see it in the way that you live and you stress and you worry. And God is saying that system is done. And Jesus comes to us and he says, I fulfilled it. I want you to know that above all else, you're my child. And I don't love you because you're good. I don't love you because you have a, you know, ability to sin less than other people. I love you because I'm choosing to love you. It's a kind of reckless love that maybe 2,000 years after I show up, people will sing songs about. I will chase you down as my child. And it makes all the difference in the world. And so when Jesus came to this group that lived on rights and wrongs, that lived on like, am I getting it right? Have I balanced it enough? Where do I sit before God to have Jesus say out loud, it's fulfilled. It's done. Stop playing that game. Learn to walk as my child, he says. And, and they learn to walk. And there's a few things I think that we see come out of this. And I just give you three markers of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. The first is it's going to be soaked in love. There will be times where you're just sort of undone 
by the love of God. Oftentimes this happens in the harder moments, the darker moments of life. And I just want to point you at a phrase. I know I've been throwing out some books this summer uh, that I think would be, you know, just kind of great summer reading. Uh, If you haven't read Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace, this is a must read in my opinion. It'll help wrap, it'll wreck you, but it'll also help wrap your life around this incredible grace that God offers us in Jesus. If, If we could imprint this truth on our hearts. Here's what, here's what Philip Yancey says as he's talking about this. He says, there's nothing, and it's so simple, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Nothing. Like, there's nothing you can do. Jesus says, Stop. It doesn't end there, but it starts there, Jesus says. You are primarily a child of the living God by the grace of Jesus. There's nothing you can do. The longer you play this game, the longer you think God is blessing you because you're getting it right, and I better do this so that God will do that, and I better do this so that... Stop. It'll kill your heart. It's never the way you were meant to live. Love transforms law every time. The second thing, the second marker, I think, of the kind of life that God is inviting us into is a want to. You know, maybe you have two kids. One of them wakes up in the morning and checks the chore chart, and it's like, okay, here are the things I need to do to keep the boss happy. Your other child gets out of bed. They stretch good night to sleep. They come out, and they're like, Dad, what could I do today to help out? How could I pitch in as one that's loved, one that's blessed, one that gets to enjoy life in this family? Now, that's never actually happened in our family, but I'm just saying it could potentially happen. But, but you see the difference, that it's the one that's loved, that, that wakes up to the, the opportunity that God has with everything that they have. And this requires the third component that's a part of any child of the living God that walks with him, and that's trust. It's trust. God will always take us to a place where we'll start to think, oh, oh, well, I don't know if I trust. I don't know if he's really, I don't know if, you know, we talked with Em and Eric and this is a whole part of that journey. It sure looks like this is what God's doing. But there's gonna be a place where we have to trust, where we have to step in because it's much easier to control it. It's much easier to hold on And to say, oh, I got it all figured out. I'm going to go with my own righteousness. Can you imagine what that thought sounds like standing in front of the cross? You know, Jesus, thank you, but I'll take it from here. Thank you. I mean, you, you did a great job, and boy, your forgiveness seems like enough for a lot of people, but... Still think I got to earn it. Still think I got to lean into my kids and make sure they know they've got to earn it. And Paul says, and Jesus says, it's grace. It starts there. It's grace. Learn to trust. In this new relationship, you know, the only way we sort of begin to move it down the tracks in a way that God invites us to is that he actually gives us a new heart. He actually works at a different. And so it isn't the law working us into this relationship. It's the law that's in 
outgrowth and outpouring of a heart that Jesus alone has transformed. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, he puts some cool language around this, I think, that helps us get this picture. In contrast, too, to the law, he says this, this new plan, that's Jesus, uh, that I'm making with Israel, my people of promise, isn't going to be written on paper like the old law. It isn't going to be chiseled into stone like what Moses brought down uh, from the mountain. This time, this new time, this time we're in, this I'm fulfilling time, I'm writing out the plan in them, carving it on the lining of their hearts. They'll get to know me, not by getting it all right, not by making little sacrifices for me, but by being kindly forgiven. I think that's why we we get undone by the love of God, oftentimes in our brokenness. They'll get to know me by being kindly forgiven with the slate of their sins. This is what Jesus has done forever wiped clean. That's my children getting to know me as a result of the forgiveness that I alone offer with this slate that like nothing sticks to it anymore. Why? Because the punishment for it has been poured out on the cross and we get through the truth that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets a new heart and a finished righteousness. A new heart and a finished righteousness. I want to take us through sort of just three. These are uh, in the outline in the last couple minutes. Uh, but what does this kind of look like for us? If we become people that have a sort of gospel or good news goodness, so that it comes out of a heart that's been transformed with a slate that's been wiped clean. The first thing we see is that um, gospel goodness drives us, to, drives us to a goodness because we're good. I think that may be a little bit of a weird thing to say, but Jesus himself said that. He said the fruit is going to show you what kind of tree it is. Jesus is actually after transforming your heart, my heart, changing my desires, changing my passions, changing the things that get me off. He said, I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you good. I'm going to put my spirit in you and you'll wake up to new desires, to new passions. Gospel goodness is good because I'm good. But the second thing that God's love does is it transforms our heart and gives us a new heart as it's, his law is sketched on our heart as it satisfies us. It brings us to a place where we're not living with that mild sense of dissatisfaction chasing what we think we need to fill that up. And I really believe that in our day and age, and it's the only day and age I've ever lived in, so it may be every day and age, but the, the devil is after our satisfaction. If he can cause you to be just a little bit cynical about your neighbor, a little dissatisfied for what you've been given, I'm telling you, you will not have goodness and you will rebound to some kind of religious righteousness faster than you want. The second thing is that it's loved because I'm loved. It's loved because I'm loved. One of the great privileges that Kathy and I've had for lots and lots of couples is walking through some premarital counseling. And so we just kind of walk through some different sessions. And one of these, we talk uh, about what love looks like. What is it, right? What's Christian love? And, and why does God invite us to care for each other that way? And we always you know, it's always talking about the cross. It's always a sacrificial love. It's a pouring out love for my spouse. It's an 
emptying love for my spouse. And as I was giving this talk one time with two people that have never, they don't know Jesus personally. They, they don't know the story of the gospel. And so we're walking through love. Meanwhile, I'm praying that this would be an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. And I'm looking at the guy because I don't know what to say to the girl because I'm not one. So I just talked to the guy the whole time. I said, hey, here's the deal. This is what a good marriage is gonna require of you. This is what she needs. She needs you to empty yourself for her. And then when she takes everything you think you have, you empty yourself again. And you just keep pouring in, pouring in, pouring in. Empower her, serve her, love her. That's the picture of what marriage should look like. And he's like, I'm like, don't you think that would work better than your model? He's like, oh, hands down. That, that would be amazing. Then he looked back at me and asked me this key question. He said, but who's gonna take care of me? And I said, you gotta meet Jesus. He came to take care of you. He came to, to satisfy you, to love you in such a way that you're not dependent any longer on her to love you. You are so well loved that you love. That's what grace looks like. That's what his love looks like. And if both of you can get that right, man, the rest of it's fun. Well, not all of it, but the rest of it's fun. And, and that's what loving because we're loved looks like. And ultimately, and this is what we'll walk out in the days ahead. It's that, that God's kingdom and our um, life in it is from the inside out. It's really God taking us down this path to find out actually what's going on in our hearts. And so as some of you know that have studied the Sermon on the Mount before, it's like, whoa, Jesus, that's where I want to keep you. And yet we're going to invite ourselves as a community in these weeks ahead to just open it up and say, God, what, whatever you have, we want to learn to trust. We want to be, learn to be undone by your love. We want to learn to allow our insides to be transformed, that our outsides might live a kind of goodness that actually help people and actually give us life. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for making a way in the work and the person of Jesus. Thank you for those words that Jesus uttered that day that we can so many of us look back on and see proof of in our real lives that you fulfilled the law, that you did that on our behalf. And there's a new heart for those that confess their sin, that trust your work on the cross. And it's that new heart, that new gospel goodness that you invite us into, to be individuals, to be a community that loves well because we're loved. God, help us to experience that. Help us to, God, in these moments, be a church that reflects your goodness and your love in the way that we praise. We love you, God. We want to learn to trust you in all ways. Amen and amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message. If you enjoyed this message and you'd like to consider partnering with us financially, please visit sierrabiblechurch.com.